I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Emotional isolation and alienation. Hiding. Attacking. The pain of seeing yourself as not enough, less than, unworthy. The messed up stuff we do and the messed up stuff that is done to us. Welcome to the universal human experience. This universal human experience is met with pop culture cliches and social media hashtags that resound and repeat enough to keep us in the shallow end. What better time than now to go a little deeper? Um, So we've just wrapped up studying through the book of Colossians as a church, and next week we're starting a new practice, um, which is exciting. You know, there aren't many Sunday nights where we aren't either making our way through a book of the Bible or working through a spiritual discipline or emotional health practice. So uh, it's my choice on what we'll be spending our time studying tonight. Somebody made a mistake and gave me the choice. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 13, and let's do a deep dive into defiling molds in ancient Israelite households. That's a joke, because you guys are excited. Wow. Uh, Okay. Yeah, we're not going to do that. Although it could be. It could be fascinating. Uh, Maybe maybe a different week. Okay, so uh, in 2006, uh, when I was 17 years old and a senior in high school, I joined a band with a few guys in their mid-20s. I can still picture the basement with a really low ceiling where we would practice and you would like be done and you'd lift my bass guitar for me up and it would just like hit the ceiling and you'd be like, ah, oh, dang it. Um, that was the starting point of my musical journey. Uh, joining the band was a sort of like turning point uh, in my life in many ways. It actually marked, uh, looking back, a decisive step away from Jesus and into a music scene where I would go on to do really foolish uh, and destructive things for about three years. You know, the, the kinds of things that can kind of linger with you even after you leave that season of life. Uh, that time was shaping me into a bitter, cynical, angry person. But in 2006, as I stepped into this band with these dudes, it seemed much more harmless, innocuous. Uh, I grew up in the bubble of a very conservative, fundamentalist strand of Christianity. Most of you who have been uh, you know, around Van City for just even a little while uh, know what I'm about to share about myself, but if you're new here, uh, let me just spill the details of my life in front of you. Hey, I'm Cameron. Um, so along with this culture of Christianity, fundamentalist, conservative uh, culture that I grew up in, I also grew up in a, a, in a household where I was abused and abandoned by my dad, raised with a struggling single mom doing her best to put a roof over our heads and, and food on the table. We were really, really poor, but we were going to a wealthy private school that extended family paid for for us, which made our poverty that much more public. And by 17, this was all catching up to me, talking about stuff uh, that was embarrassing or even traumatic wasn't really something that somebody did in the circles that I grew up in. Instead, you had to you know, hide it and cover it up with respectability, whatever that looked like in that particular culture. Any faith in Jesus I had at the age of 17 and stepping into this band was quickly collapsing. 
I was angry and hurting, but didn't have the words to even say it. So I joined a band to step out of the fundamentalism I had been raised in. Take that, Jesus. Take that, church. It was bad music, too. Um, so fast forward 10 years and um, an eventual return following Jesus. Here I am. Um, and in 2016, I picked up this book entitled The 3D Gospel, Ministry in Guilt, Shame, and Fear Cultures. So uh, the book is written mainly for Western people wanting to be missionaries in non-Western places. And it was here that I read and became fascinated by this biblical idea of shame. I read and explored the scholarly level discussions around shame in the scriptures with uh, hunger and energy. Uh, when given the freedom to choose papers uh, in seminary, the topics of papers in seminaries, I usually chose a topic that related to shame in the scriptures, and it's still a thing for me. I'm talking about it tonight, right? Uh, now, unbeknownst to me, right, a clinical researcher Brene Brown did a TED Talk video back in 2011 that more or less started this slow motion pop culture avalanche around the discussion of shame when it went like viral. Uh, her video was viewed tens of millions of times. This clinical researcher talking about shame went viral. I mean, that, that, does, that seems like an oxymoron, but it happened. Uh, in a Huffington Post article reviewing one of Brene Brown's books back in uh, 2015, they wrote, her, researcher, uh, her research and work have given us a new vocabulary, a way to talk with each other about the ide ideas and feelings and fears we've all had but haven't quite known how to articulate it. It's like we've all had a sense of the concepts Brene studies, specifically shame, vulnerability, and courage, but never before have we had the words to fully express what we've been feeling or to share with each other our experiences. The uh, evangelical Christian subculture bubble, constantly two to 20 years behind the ideas of the present culture, produced three separate books in 2016, all with the title Unashamed. Shame was in, marketable, lucrative. But in 2016, when I grabbed that book about shame, I had no clue it had, it had been an ongoing thing in pop culture. I didn't read articles about it. I probably would have struggled to give a confident definition of the word shame back then, let alone did I know that there was three books coming out in popular Christian culture entitled Unashamed. I just kept nerding out on this stuff from a scholarly approach, blissfully ignorant of what had been happening in the broader culture. It wasn't until a couple years later that I stepped into the pop culture conversation around shame. It was going uh, into this uh, conversation in pop culture was like going from reading whole articles or books on, a on one hypothesis about shame into a world of pithy, tweetable shame quotes or a shame hashtag on Instagram. Uh, shame had become the boogeyman for the self-help, social media influencer crowd, the motivational speakers and their crowds. And you know, they've done an amazing job setting up this caricature of shame, defining it any way that's convenient for a pithy quote to quote unquote, inspire others. But at 17, I joined a band and took on a different way of life. 
I did it in large part because shame was the air that I breathed growing up. So it's really no surprise why shame has captured my attention and become my hobby horse. And okay, so sitting with a counselor and putting painful experiences and thoughts into words in a trustworthy environment has helped me a ton. Reading dry scholarly books and articles and opening the scriptures and studying and thinking and writing about it were both a theological hobby horse and also deeply personal and impactful for me. So I think it's time well spent doing a little rehabbing from pop culture of this word, concept, and feeling shame. It's one of those topics that can be both a very academic, you know, as in knowing things about shame helps us read the scriptures with better understanding, while also being a universal, deeply human experience. And we're going to dive into both tonight. Are you guys ready? There it is. No Leviticus 13. I'm sorry to disappoint. Okay, so we're going to be doing some work in the scriptures in just a bit. But first, let's do some work uh, around this word shame and and having a better understanding of it. Uh, So remember, it's been defined by pop culture for the last decade or so, which has diminished it to kind of partial truths at best. There are generally four areas to shame. Psychological, relational, cultural, and theological. And we'll touch on all four of these. Okay, so here's a question for you, okay? And the answer isn't Jesus, so don't, don't try that one. Um, is shame a good or bad thing? I hear a little bit. The correct answer, yes. Yeah. Typically, in our culture, it's exclusively regarded as a bad thing. It's something that you, if you have it, then you need, uh, you need to do something to stop having it. But what is shame? Well, uh, the way it works in our brains is that it's a feeling. It's a, a, an emotion. If you were to put uh, into words this feeling, it could be described as pain, painful embarrassment, a feeling of being terribly lacking, a feeling of otherness or unworthiness, um, self-loathing, the painful thought that there's something messed up about me. It can be in response to something we do or that is done to us. It weaves itself around the stories we believe about ourselves. So, So pop culture typically says stop feeling shame. The the feeling of shame is trapping you. Break free from it. But maybe it's not as clear-cut as that. Uh, Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, who does work merging neuroscience and spiritual formation, writes this, shame as a neurophysiological phenomenon, that is what's happening physically to your brain, is not bad in and of itself. It is rather our system's way of warning of possible impending abandonment. Shame is an emotion that our brains are hardwired to experience. Uh, Researchers guess that shame is first experienced by children between the ages of 15 and 18 months old, probably in response to correction or even just a look from a parent. So feeling shame is not necessarily bad or good. Shame could be an appropriate response to the prospect of rejection or abandonment. 
You may feel shame for acting in destructive ways. You might feel shame when a destructive behavior is discovered by someone else. To totally rid yourself of shame means you'd probably have to be dead since your brain is hardwired to experience it. And while shame is a feeling, it's a feeling that influences us. The way we view ourselves and our, and our behaviors, it influences in profound ways. Uh, we respond to these painful feelings in, in different ways, but, but two typical behaviors that shame pushes, pushes us towards is judgment and hiding. Now, by judgment, I don't mean the necessary wise act of discerning right from wrong. The kind of judgment I'm talking about manifests itself in contempt, condemnation, or criticizing ourselves and or other people. It's sort of like an attack response. Sometimes not even harsh, but even just masquerading as objective perceptions about ourselves or others. Another uh, hallmark of shame is hiding. Again, Kurt Thompson writes this, when we experience shame, we tend to turn away from others because the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame, being inten intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away while temporarily protecting and relieving us from our feeling ironically, simultaneously reinforces the very shame we are attempting to avoid. Notably, we do not necessarily realize this to be happening. We're just trying to survive the moment. So our synapses in our brain fire, the painful feeling rises up, and we typically either attack or hide. Now, if we stopped here and just focused on the individual's experience, uh, you know, the, the psychological aspect of shame, then we, we'd be right in line with pop culture's approach to it, focusing mainly on the individual human's experience. However, we shouldn't stop there. Shame is an internal feeling that works itself out in relationships. Remember, it looks like hiding or attacking. Its trajectory is one of alienation and isolation, a, a pulling back emotionally from those around us as we attempt to hide the parts of us that we feel ashamed about. This isn't something you just work out by yourself on your own. That actually compounds the problem. Shame is something that is worked out in relationship to others. Now, in our individualistic culture, we can fall into the trap of approaching shame in a way that looks more like self, low self-esteem, as in what you ultimately need is to feel better about yourself. But that's really flat and ultimately unhelpful uh, to view it that way. It's actually pretty tricky to deal with it in an individualistic culture like ours. We want to solve things on our own. We want freedom and independence rather than interdependency on others. Even the hint of neediness is a turnoff. So we have two forces pushing us back from dealing with shame. The natural neurological response to shame of attacking and or hiding and our culture's inability to deal with shame on an individualistic framework. It's why the Huffington Post would nearly worship at the feet of a clinical researcher like Brene Brown for her work on shame, describing it as if she had like discovered a new continent or something. Uh, 
Over generations, as Americans have become more individualistic, the culture has lost methods for dealing with shame and even the language around it. So less like a new discovery for Brene Brown and more like a timely reminder of a universal human experience in one corner of the globe. But still, kudos to her. She has some helpful things to say. Okay, you guys are doing really good. Thank you so much. And we're like halfway through the nerdy, nerdy stuff. So hang in there with me. We're getting to the meat and potatoes of this thing, okay? You guys good? Okay, because if you're not, too bad. We're already halfway through. <laughs> Uh, shame is an individual's experience that affects relationships, but it's also a cultural phenomenon, meaning it affects a whole culture to one degree or another. Uh, one way anthropologists have categorized cultural differences around the world is to put them into three categories that you do not need to remember, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, the categories are innocence, guilt, honor, shame, and fear, power. We live in a culture that rests in the innocence guilt category, meaning our culture is predominantly motivated by concepts and feelings of innocence and guilt. It's less explicitly motivated by honor and shame. Most of the current world, listen, most of the current world right now and the cultures that the Bible was written in fall into the honor shame category. So the nuancing of these categories, while interesting to at least me, I, I can't do complete justice on tonight, but, but here's a couple broad general, generalizations. Uh, innocence, guilt cultures, our culture, are typically individualistic, meaning the individual person is the most important thing. Honor, shame cultures are typically collectivistic, meaning the family or the community or the group takes precedence over each individual. Okay, guilt, innocence, guilt cultures, and specifically guilt, typically focus, uh, focuses on a person's act and its consequences. The remedy to, is to act in order to right the wrong. Shame, uh, honor shame cultures, dealing with shame, uh, focuses on the person acting and how that act defines the person to those around them. The remedy is to restore the person as honorable, or another way to say that is valuable and well-regarded by those around them. Okay, but one of the reasons that shame has been a pop culture discussion is the shift in our culture over the last decade or so to one that is taking on more and more aspects of an honor-shame culture. Social media is one of the driving forces behind these cultural changes we're feeling. Uh, social media resonates deeply with the wiring in our brains that involve shame and, and its opposite honor. Twitter mobs, uh, the number of likes or hearts your picture or tweet gets, uh, snarky, biting comments, the list goes on. All, all of that is doing something to us. It's doing something to our culture, and people have taken notice. It's doing something to the way that we view ourselves and what we desire, how we respond to others. It's shaping the way we think. But social media is a shallow, sick caricature of an honor-shame culture. It exploits our shame and our desire for honor to make copious amounts of money. 
So shame is experienced by the individual, must be worked out in relation to others. It's a cultural phenomenon and it's also a theological reality. Because we live in a culture that's largely uh, not motivated by shame and honor, it's really hard for us to recognize the concepts at work in the scriptures as we read it. Our culture has understood forgiveness of sins really well, you know, in the context of like a courtroom and a judge declaring us innocent instead of guilty. And that is an important true concept drawn from the scriptures. But the scriptures have a lot more to say about shame than guilt. The Old Testament speaks about shame 10 times more than guilt. The New Testament talks about shame four times more than guilt. Shame is more of a talked about reality in the scriptures than guilt. Which again, shouldn't surprise us since remember, those cultures were predominantly honor shame cultures. Our shame and God's response to it is woven throughout the story of the scriptures, Old Testament and New. Which means that feeling you have, those thoughts and unspoken ideas about yourself that you harbor, the fear of exposure, the hiding, the attacking, the painful feelings, and the way it impacts us and our relationships and human cultures, God cares about all of that. And the scriptures have a lot to say about it. It actually wasn't the scholarly books that have had and have made their deepest impact on me about shame. It's been the story of the scriptures and the fact that God cares about our shame and he responds to our shame. So here it is, Bible time. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. That's the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. The creation account of the scriptures are pretty clear-cut, right? Um, God creates everything. Humans break a rule and eat from a tree that they're not supposed to, and then they get kicked out of the garden as punishment. That fits our culture's paradigm of innocence and guilt. But check out what the scriptures highlight in the creation narrative. Right after God created Adam and Eve, and right before things go terribly wrong, there's one verse that seems almost like a throwaway. It's the last verse of Genesis 2. It's verse 25. And it just simply says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. A little strange, right? Like, do we really need to know that? Um, But it's helpful to understand that in, in ancient Israel, nudity was extremely shameful for both the person exposed but also those who witnessed it. But here there is no shame. There's no fear of being exposed, nothing to hide, just some real vulnerability. But then Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God. They they choose to define right and wrong for themselves and eat from the tree. Look over at chapter 3, starting in verse 7, and look what their immediate response is. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? 
They rebel and they hide. They cover and hide their nakedness. They hide from God. And what's one of the hallmarks of shame? Hiding. Yeah, good. What's God's response? Seeking. He goes looking for them. It goes on. Verse 10. He, that is Adam, answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. God questions Adam, inviting confession and vulnerability. What does Adam do? Seems like he kind of attacks, right? He condemns Eve, and if you missed it, he implicitly blames God for the whole mess since he's the one that put her there with Adam. This is God's fault. Eve will go on to do a little bit better than Adam, but not much better. The response to rebellion by both Adam and Eve is a psychological response of shame. The experience of shame is at the foundations of the fall of humanity and the brokenness that we experience. You and I have been made in the image of God, clothed in dignity and value. You and I have also been marred and twisted by rebellion and are, and are now under the weight of shame. It's a problem now. But God's response to Adam and Eve's rebellion starts the ripples of redemption that will find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. If you're familiar with the story, God promises that someone will come to crush the head of the enemy that has lured humanity into rebellion. You probably know that one if you've been around the church for a while. But God also responds to humanity's shame. Look down at verse 21 and see the last thing that God does before Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. God covers their nakedness. He covers their shame. He covers their painful exposure. This too ripples through the scriptures, finding its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. God's response to the shame of humanity by covering and clothing comes through time and time again in the scriptures. So fast forward the story and you have the nation of Israel rescued out of slavery, receiving from God instructions on how they are to be a light to the world around them. Part of that was the artistic symbolism that they used in their worship of God. The, the priests of Israel were to lead the nation in worship, and, and God had something very specific in mind for them to wear to symbolize something very important. God, speaking to, speaking to Moses, said, "'Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity.'" And honor. In the worship of Yahweh, the priestly garments were a symbol of dignity and honor. 
from the naked exposure in the garden to clothing symbolizing honor and dignity for the priests. And honor and dignity are the opposites of shame in the scriptures. Uh, the story of the scriptures continues on this motif of shame and God's desire to replace it with honor and dignity. Israel, like Adam and Eve, fall into rebellion against God and are ultimately exiled out of their land with Jerusalem and the temple destroyed. It's the ultimate national shame and disgrace. Now, a small ragtag group of Jewish people return from Babylon to the land after a few generations, but there's something that's been lost from before the exile. The, the stain of the exile continues to linger with them even after they rebuild the city and the temple. And a prophet by the name of Zechariah has a vision that he writes down for the people during this time. In it, he sees the high priest Joshua representing the nation of Israel to God. And Zechariah writes of his vision, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, that's Zechariah getting in on the action, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. In this uh, pretty wild vision, Satan stands beside Joshua before Yahweh in order to accuse him. I mean, there's Joshua standing before God in filthy clothing symbolizing his and Israel's rebellion against God. But God doesn't accuse Joshua. He gives him clean clothes for giving his sin. The enemy, Satan, looks to exploit shame by accusing us. The enemy looks to exploit our shame. God looks to deal with our shame. And to deal with it, God enters into it. He experiences it on our behalf through Jesus of Nazareth. The pinnacle of this is uh, where the story comes full circle from Genesis 3 and the shame of Adam and Eve is seen at the execution of Jesus. Being put to death as a rebel and criminal Jesus is publicly humiliated by the Roman soldiers. They place a purple robe and crown and a crown of thorns on his head and mockingly bow down to him. They parade him through the streets as one made helpless by the power of Rome. Jesus endures the scorn and contempt of the religious elite as he slowly dies on the cross. But out of all of that, that, there's this detail. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Jesus hung naked and exposed on the cross. Humans, uh, those God covered in response to their shame, strip Jesus naked and shame him 
Jesus took on our shame of rebellion and evil and our sin against God. He took it on himself. And through his death and resurrection, we have our shame taken away and we are handed dignity, value, and worthiness. This idea of honor. Paul wrote this to the churches in the region of Galatia. So in Christ Jesus, in King Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We are adopted into into the royal family of God, made sons and daughters, covered not with animal skins or fine robes or clean clothes, but with Jesus himself. So what does this all mean for someone like me, with my own baggage, and because of neuroscience, I can say with confidence, people like all of you as well? It means I don't have to hide. It means I don't have to try to compensate for my shame, to cover it up, if you will, with a big house or lots of higher education degrees or by being well-liked. Whatever it is you're hiding or trying to cover, it means you can bring this part of yourself out of hiding and share it with others in appropriate environments. It means that the parts of you that are a source of shame aren't actually the things that ultimately define you. Because what's more true of you than your psychological experience of a painful emotion is that you are a son or daughter in the royal family of God. You are clothed with Jesus himself, covered in dignity and value and worthiness. And here's where pop culture usually falls extremely short on shame. The shame you and I have is for, really, is for a really uh, valid reason. Uh, something is wrong with us, and something is wrong with this world. We do bad, destructive, harmful stuff, and bad, destructive, harmful stuff is done to us. And that usually sparks the painful feelings about who we are and what that means about us. It's really not helpful to dismiss the gravity of how messed up stuff is with shallow, unnuanced, blanket assumptions that everyone is inherently worthy or your life is beautiful or people are inherently good or that everything will turn out okay if you just keep a positive perspective. That's not really the world we live in. Those kind of assumptions are at best a half-truth or a decent possibility. But that doesn't stop those assumptions from bleeding into cultural catchphrases plastered on social media and random signs in restaurants or schools or wherever. They just aren't actually truly helpful. Maybe they work more like Advil to diminish the pain for a few hours, but what are they actually grounded in? For followers of Jesus, we meet the experience of shame in the broken world with the good news of Jesus that we have been given dignity and value and worth based on Him, not based on us, which is great because if we all make an honest assessment of our lives right now, 
We all have and continue to struggle with things that point to the fact that we are all broken, bent. We all have things that we could be ashamed of. The theological truth, however, doesn't always make the painful feelings go away, but it gives us an anchor point to, in vulnerability, bring those things causing us to be ashamed into the light of relationships with others. And when done in appropriate ways with trustworthy people, that does bring relief to our experience of shame. It helps us live as if we really are people that are valuable and worthy and with dignity. So to end tonight, just two questions for you to process through. Is there anything right now as you sit tonight that needs to be revealed in vulnerability? Maybe you're heading in that direction already and so nothing comes to mind that you're not already working on. Great stuff, keep it up. But maybe there's something there that even right now, you're saying to yourself, nah, not that thing, <laughs> not yet. Remember, your natural reaction to things that bring you shame is to keep them hidden. So if you're sitting there thinking like, I think this might actually resonate with me, I'd encourage you um, right now to ask God's spirit if it's time to go to that place doesn't mean you have to tell everyone. In fact, you probably shouldn't tell everyone. Uh, just start with one person. Maybe a good first step is to just make an appointment with a counselor or uh, set, up a, set up a time to go to coffee with a trusted, wise, sensitive mentor or friend or someone in your Van City community. Or maybe you need to have a conversation with your spouse. If you think it'd be helpful there are leaders here at Van City who are available to sit with you in all of this stuff. Uh, we have available a recommended counselors list that we'd be happy to pass along to you if you think that would help. My second question is this. Are you a trustworthy person for those in your life who might need someone to be vulnerable with? Do you listen well? Do you avoid cliches and incessant positivity? Can you sit with someone who is mourning and to mourn with them? And maybe most importantly, have you risked vulnerability in your own life? Have you experienced it yourself and follow through with it yourself? Uh, the New Testament church was set up to be a place where people were to experience dignity and value and worthiness each follower of Jesus receives. The community was to be the primary tangible experience of that. Not because people hid all of their brokenness or shifted focus away from them by uh, attacking those around them. The church was to be the place where broken, ashamed people were able to share their burdens with one another. And the community would respond not with contempt or not with a rush towards some vague tolerance, but with encouragement and support for the person so that they could live their lives with dignity and value and worthiness, honoring Jesus in that process. And that starts with you and I being trustworthy as an invitation for those 
around us to practice vulnerability. Let's pray together tonight. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.